Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. How does a person cope with or understand that porn will always be a click away? This sounds like somebody who's the addict and knowing that it's always around and has to choose differently. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think that the metaphor for alcoholism is really good here. You know, people who are alcoholic have to negotiate dinners and friends and holidays and, you know, they have to see alcohol all the time. And in terms of that piece, you know, it's not that dissimilar from any addiction. So, you know, what I say to a lot of the porn folks is, um, I know this sounds silly, stay connected because you think you're connected, but you're not really. We, the way that we, one of the best ways we see recovery working is accountability. That, you know, if I really have a computer issue or a social media issue, I call someone in my recovery program at right before I had to get online and I say, hey, I'm getting online and I'll be online till noon and I'll check in with you at then. And I don't know about for all of you, but I think for a lot of us addicts, that feeling of they know what I'm doing, not I'm hiding it from them, but they know what I'm doing and I've declared it and now I need to be accountable to it right there and then, that can be really helpful for folks. By the way, Tam, I had someone in the rooms the other night who the exact same thing, they were just saying, oh my God, I." Every time I see my computer, I think about porn. How, are, how am I ever going to control this? And I said, you're not going to be able to ever control it. But what you can do is be aware of it and understand what it means and then take healthy actions around it. And I think the analogy with alcohol is, is very apt. Um, you know, it's everywhere. I don't drink anymore. I choose not to. So for me, knowing that it's there doesn't mean you know, I, I have a choice. And I think with, you know, yes, the computer is porn, but it's also, you know, lots of other great resources. We have this and there's previously recorded. So, so if I'm at my computer and I'm thinking, oh, porn, 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 I can also think, oh, resources, 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 and choose the other direction. So, so retraining the brain that it isn't all about, I can't do this and I have to stay away from it, but I can choose differently. And as someone in recovery, the more I can choose, the better it is for me. If somebody is just telling me, no, you can't do that, you know, then of course I want to do it more, et cetera. So, so if I decide that this is, I would rather be on this path and I can make choices, you know, that actually is helpful for me. So, okay. And just to build on what you said a moment ago, Tammy, um, we do have a podcast. I'm not trying to sell anything. Podcasts are free. We have half a million people who've downloaded it. They seem to like it. But you know, if you're sitting Thank you. <laughs> Scares me when I hear that, but it's all over the world. It's not just here. Yeah. But anyway, part of what I hear about the podcast is when people are sitting around the house and they have nothing to do, or they're just chatting with friends online, they may listen or have it going. And there is something I've heard from guys like, oh, I was going to stop there, but your podcast was playing. And I thought, oh, I can't do that. Or a spouse who says, you know, I, I can't stand looking at this person another minute and then they hear stuff on the podcast that's helpful so i just want to say that's why we did it um and tammy if you want to put the link in the chat that'd be so I will. helpful yeah but, I will. um tammy back uh, i know we have other questions i just wanted to say that because it no, really is helpful. I, I, and i've had i've had people who have said anytime i think of relapsing i listen to a podcast i've had partners who have said 
like when I answer the phone, my voice is familiar. Oh, I've been hearing you on a podcast, you know, so they're engaging with that and finding a piece of connection and support, even if it's not in real time, it still is something that is in a positive direction. So I will put the chat in, So, that, but I'm gonna read the next question. I was told that, that I turned to porn because I've, I have a high sex drive, which is probably true since I was young. I do not watch porn often anymore, but when I am tempted, I mainly turn to pictures versus videos. Can a high sex drive be a cause of someone turning to porn? And what does one do if this is the case? Well, that's a lot of questions. You know, I, I never, I mean, this question doesn't mention addiction. So, you know, I, I think if you, actually it would be better for me, Tammy, if you read through it real quick and maybe try to bring it down to what the question is, because it is, there's a lot there. Yes. So I was told that I turned to porn because I've, I have a high sex drive, which is pro right. probably true since I am young. I do not watch porn often anymore, but when I am tempted, I mainly turn to pictures versus videos. Can a high sex drive be a cause of someone turning to porn? And what does one do if this is the case? So it's, can a high sex drive be a cause? Right. Well, first of all, I heard the word young. And I have to say, being a little older, that uh, it is easier to manage sex and porn addiction when you're in middle age, because you don't, I don't have all that testosterone and all the intensity of being young coursing through me. Um, and so, you know, what I would consider a high sex drive, I'm not sure what that means, first of all, because that may mean something that you, there are people who love having a lot of sex and they're not, no addiction, no problems. And I think good for them. And then there are people who don't have a lot of sex and they worry there's something wrong with them. And I say, do you want to have more? And they say, no. And I say, good for you. So I don't think any sex drive is really better or worse or harder or easier. Um, but I do think the question, I don't understand what you mean by turned to porn. Does that mean you turned away from relationships? Does that mean you turned away from things that were important to you? I mean, I don't think the porn into its, unto itself is a problem. You said you don't even look that often anymore. I don't know the difference between pictures and videos. I think probably video are more engaging and might pull you in further for longer. So, hey, you self-corrected. You know, you went from the intensity of moving images to a still image, which is a, does not pull on your sleeve so much. So you sound like somebody who's pretty aware of what you're trying to do. Um, and I don't, uh, I don't think that, I think many, many people look at porn and they look at casually or they look at regularly, whether they're young or they're single or whatever's going on or they're, or they're grieving something and they want a distraction. It doesn't mean that there's a problem. Problems start when you're isolating, when you find you're spending more time with the computer than you are talking to friends or, or doing your school stuff or, or working or, you know, it's when a good part of my time and attention in, in, in every single day is taken up with the pursuit of or involvement with porn. I will say, however, that there are people who have what I call maybe an occasional use problem. It's kind of like someone, Tammy, who, you know, they really get drunk as poop, you know, when something bad happens, but they don't drink that often. But when they drink, they get drunk. And I think there are also porn addicts who, you know, st stuff happens and you guys will disappear into it for a period of time without it being as consistently problematic as it is for an addict. So I'm not sure if I answered the part I missed, Tammy, please 
let me let us know. No, yeah, I think you did. I, my one question was, I don't hear, I have great relationships and, you know, I'm still doing this or whatever. So, so that was the only caveat for me was, you know, if you've got healthy relationships, then, you know, an occasional porn use. And like you said, self-corrected may not be an issue if you're concerned about it and it's keeping you from being connected with, you know, people, then, you know, then maybe look at one more level. Or if you are connected to people and it's taking you away from them, like you're involved with someone. And a lot of spouses of people have porn problems will say to me um, about men in particular, I feel like he's so distracted. I feel like he isn't there. I feel like he's really distant. And we don't understand the person who's doing that, that we're any of those things. We just think we're fine. We just have this little thing that we're hiding. But emotionally, when we're and biologically, psychobiologically, we're putting so much energy into hours of whatever or the intensity of whatever, it does turn down the interest and involvement in our relationships because they're not as intense. They're not as exciting. And when you're spending you know, a couple hours a day or many hours a week looking at that and then expecting your regular life to be woohoo, it will not be, and it starts to diminish. So when it becomes more important than your regular life, and you say, well, that's okay, I'll just keep doing it, it's a problem. So the next question, in a joint therapy session with the addict's therapist, with no topics discussed as a boundary, would there ever be a reason for the addict's therapist to openly and consistently lie to the betrayed spouse? My SA husband saw his CSAT for 20-ish sessions and initially took multiple sex trauma and childhood assessments so the therapist was very aware of his issues. I've also seen these assessments. In our first joint session, my husband CSAT said that the marriage problems were due to my sexual issues. I do not have any. And because my husband could not trust me to tell me the truth about his secret life. He also said the only way that his addictions played a role in our marriage demise was when we had a disagreement. He would use sex to numb. But the main issue were the disagreements themselves, not the numbing activities. Would a therapist lie to protect the addict or could he possibly believe the addict's lies? Help. Okay, since you read that, it's a lot. Um, I do want to say just in general, but I'm not, I want to go back to the question because there's a lot there. So hang in there, Tammy, and ask you to tell me more. <laughs> yeah. But a um, couple of things. I don't know whose therapist this is, whether this is the couple's therapist or one of your individual therapists. Maybe did someone it said, said my husband In a joint therapy session with the addict's therapist. So this sounds like right. his therapist and we did a joint right. session. Okay. Well, when I'm working with partners, especially ones I don't know well, what I'm thinking about is, wow, I bet I'm going to get a lot of information I don't know about. I bet I'm going to hear a version of this, their life together or whatever's going on that I have not heard from my client. Because I don't know if you're aware of this, but addicts lie to us, even to us therapists often. And I've had many of the client who says, well, I got to tell you something, you know, I've been lying for three months and I understand exactly how your spouses feel because I've been pouring my time and energy into this person. But I also, you know, they're not, I'm not related to them that my loved ones so I can more compassionately uh, redirect their lying into what the heck's going on with them. Um, but hold on, I'm gonna go. so Tammy, I wanted to say there's more in that question I was going to ask you about because it's a lot of stuff and I'm not sure about the question. Oh, one more thing, sorry. I would never, ever, 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 ever in my entire life, ever in 35 years of doing this work, tell a spouse that there was anything about her or him that was causing the addiction. It doesn't matter whether you have sexual problems or not. I wanna say something rude now. You could give someone no access whatsoever to touching or kissing you or loving you in any way. You can lock the door every night. Your husband can leave. 
he can get a divorce, he can buy a car, he can go, you can adopt some kids. There are a lot of things that people can do to give their life meaning and hope and excitement when their marriage isn't doing so well. And so I always want to tell you, say to you spouses, what did you do wrong that led to this person seeing sex workers, being online with porn? You know, what did you do or not do exactly? And some of you will say, well, I, I've I've really gained all that weight. I never got rid of it. And, you know, I've been so focused on the kids. I haven't really been present. You know, some of you will say, well, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. And I've been, you know, whatever it is. And the minute you say anything that even hints to me that you think it's your fault, I'm going to stop you and say, there's nothing that you as a spouse can ever, ever, ever do to make me go act out my addiction, whether it's gambling or drinking or whatever. I can be very unhappy and we can be very unhappy, but I can do a lot of things with that unhappiness other than go pursue sexual relationships. Uh, I, so just, I just wanted to include that because there's a little hint in your communication of, well, the therapist told me I wasn't this and the ter- therapist, and I don't know how much you might take that in, but I'm telling you, there you may make him miserable, but you have nothing to do with his problems. Those those he causes himself. So the ultimate question is: Would a therapist lie to protect the addict, or could he possibly believe the addict's lies? Okay, thank you for that, Tammy. So uh, as I said, we lie to therapists all the time, and we especially lie to therapists about our spouses. Because we want that therapy. I'm talking about in the early recovery, first seeing these therapists. We, we do what we do with everyone, sex and love addicts. We seduce. We don't want them to, and we do it with you. We don't want them to think we're as bad as we think we are. So we only tell them this, or we, not all of us. I mean, some of us, you know, go right out there and say it. So I will always tend to, to believe, quite honestly, the therapist over the client, <laughs> at least in the beginning. But, you know, if I had an issue with what a therapist said, you know, if Tammy were running that group and I felt uncomfortable with the way that that had gone, I would call them up and I would say, I'm sorry, did you mean this? Or is this what you meant? Because I just really want to understand that better. Not anything about your spouse, nothing, but this is something that this person said to you. So I would think it's perfectly fine to clarify that uh, because I would never want to hear any therapist um, lying to you about anything. Um, that's not our job to protect another person. But let me just say one more thing about that. Some of you guys are in couples therapy and that's the only person you're seeing. And if you're in early recovery or in the first year of this process, it's not really a good idea. And let me tell you why. Um, couples therapists often like to see the couple and they like to see each person and kind of get a, a feeling about the whole thing. Well, if I'm a couples therapist and I'm seeing the two of you and Tammy's my patient, she comes to see me and she says, as the wife and says, well, let me tell you all the sexual stuff I've been doing. And, and then she says, but don't tell my husband when we have a couple session. Well, what situation does that put me in as a therapist? That's a, ther- that's a situation I never want to be in. So every therapist should say upfront, if they're working with a couple, I don't keep secrets and I don't lie. So if you tell me something, this is a couples therapist, if you tell me something, you can expect that I'm going to ask you to tell your spouse when we meet again, because I don't hold secrets. And of course, that would be horrible for you, right? Because if you were seeing, if you were seeing a therapist who was supposed to be there, there for both of you, and you found out that he or she knew things that you didn't and kept it from you, that would be awful. And you'd lose all your trust in the therapist. So we never want to be in a role where we are a couple of things. I never want to be in a role where I'm saying what my client did or didn't do. If you ask me, did with my spouse, with that person in the room, did you do this or not? If I'm the therapist, did he do this or not? Did she do this or not? I'm going to say, well, let's ask them. 
And then you and I sit there and find out what the truth is, but I'll never say, let me tell you about what your spouse has done or your, and I will never disclose it. Um, I'm sorry. I, I will not, but I will talk to you individually if you have questions about you. And then I'll call your husband and say, I want, you know, I talked to her and this is what she called me about. So, um, I don't think there's any occasion on which a therapist would lie to someone unless they were so mentally ill that we needed to protect them or ourselves. Uh, we do our best to keep ourselves. I mean, we're role models for you guys. So if we're lying, that's not a good thing. I'm starting to go on and on, Tammy. No. It, it, next question. Is it common for sex addicts to display characteristics of Peter Pan syndrome? That is emotionally immature and requiring a lot of attention for a start. Tammy, do you want to try that one? Uh, to me, I would be like, yes, narcissistic, self-absorbed, you know, want all the, want everything to go my way. Me, 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 me. So yes. And I think what we do in our treatment program is help them understand that it isn't really, the world does not necessarily revolve around them. Actually, it doesn't revolve around them. So anyway, but Peter Pan syndrome is a specific comment. So thoughts? Um well, since you mentioned the treatment center, I just want to say that there are, there's a full house of gentlemen who are sitting in a room as they do every week in treatment uh, on Mondays and Fridays and listening to this. So um, sometimes they have questions. And by the way, all you spouses who know that someone is in treatment with us, if you're on, they're on. If they're with us, they're on. Because this whole way of communicating from before treatment to the middle of treatment to after treatment to have a constant relationship with you guys free or not is, is what it's all about for us. Um, I wrote this word down and now I forgot. Tammy, the word was. Peter Pan syndrome. Yes. Um, so I know what it was. I just can't read my own writing. Um, there's a phrase also used in the other 12 step, step programs, that I think really depicts who an addict in early recovery is. And I mean, the first six months to a year. And the phrase is king baby. You know, that's the person who thinks they're in charge of everything and everyone needs to do what they need. Of course, they're only really this little teeny, you know, they really don't have any power at all, but they're sitting on there kind of telling everyone to, what to do. And, you know, that's from being used to, how do I say this? Addicts are used to running the world on their terms, because if you know you don't know things and someone else doesn't know things and I know everything, then I'm the one who can run the world because I decide what's true or not when I talk to anybody. But people in recovery, we got to tell everyone everything. And that's when the when the challenges start. But Tammy, um, do you want to respond to that as well? Well, the emotional. Uh, anything else? King well, baby? I, the, 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 well, but the emotional immaturity is that, you know, it, it and if we are constantly using our addictive behavior to numb out, to escape our emotions, we are, you know, by definition, emotionally immature. In recovery, we learn to have emotional maturity. It's a process, but it takes ongoing work and it doesn't just happen overnight. We don't fix everything in our treatment center in the short time that we have them, but we give them a path forward. But, but for somewhat, it requires ongoing work. You know, it is not something that's one and done. Now I'm all good, so. And to, and to speak to that, I, when a lot of you spouses, female in particular, get on this um, this Q&A or one of the others that I do, I often hear, Tommy does too, I don't understand. Here she's been working on this for for six months and they've stopped acting out. And I really think they're, they're really trying and they're going to the groups and everything, but they're such a jerk. How come they haven't learned to be a decent human being while, you know, and the answer is, I think that that we've kept a lot of parts of ourselves hidden 
we are really struggling in the beginning to be- figure out what life is all about. And we may not have been the most kind people to begin with. So tackling the early recovery tasks of not acting out, uh, not following that path into destruction, not ruining my life further and figuring out how and why I did this and how to stop. That's a lot for the beginning. And unfortunately for you partners who feel understandably like, hey, I deserve to have somebody who's emotionally available and present after all you did to me. You're right. But we can't always quite do that in the beginning. It's not an excuse. It's just um, empathy takes time to learn. Compassion takes time to learn. And showing it takes even longer. And it takes role models. It's not one of those things where going and seeing a therapist, even the best therapist, even the Dr. Rob, if you saw him, which he doesn't do this, but if you saw him for 50 minutes once a week, it's going to take a really, really long time. It's, you know, it's all of the oh. other resources that help mold and shape and, and give more information and create safe spaces. So, and help guide away from, oh, I want to act out. I want to act out. I want to act out. It's like, okay, I can choose differently. So. And, and I'm going to add to that. Um, maybe cause I know who we're talking to here. And so, you know, I really want to be useful to you guys. Um, recovery is not a ticket to stopping the behavior. I mean, that's, that's just the start. That's just the minimum requirement is to stop the behavior. Those of us who are committed to, those of us who have this problem realize that the behavior was the tip of the iceberg. And there are all kinds of things about how we engage people, present ourselves, keep secrets, manipulate. There are all kinds of our ways of living that we have to give up. And so I really think that this process is a way of life. You know, and it's not like a, you're joining a cult when you go to a 12-step program or not like I'm some kind of, you know, I'm going to make you drink the Kool-Aid. I'm just saying that the goal here is for you to become a different kind of person, someone who's more compassionate, more engaged, more curious, more grateful. And yes, there are very immature people that we're working with because as Tammy said, they had a place to go with their uncomfortable feelings and their overwhelm. Now they just got to put up with it. And by the way, they're no longer in control because a lot of you already know what they've been doing. And so they can no longer parse reality and the truth. So in the beginning, we can be difficult people. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry, because I know your spouses feel like you deserve better. Um, And I'm not making excuses. It's just we don't know any better on some level. But we can learn if we are committed to to the process. So next question, can a porn addict ever return to using a computer normal again? without filters after recovery? Well, I guess my question is, why would you want to try? I mean, if the filters work for you and they're helping to keep you sober or stop the behavior, or they give you a long enough period of time that your brain just really gets away from that constant wave of intensity, you know, it might be helpful to take them off, but that's like saying, um, I don't know. It's, it's like a, an, an alcoholic who's in early recovery and their spouse says, you know, I'd like to start drinking at home again. And there's a real question of, can I handle, am I ready to um, see the, the wine in the refrigerator or not? You know, we may not know until it happens, but there are, by the way, just for those of you who don't know it, there are different kinds of, um, of software that do different kinds of things um, in terms of keeping us safe. For example, there's software that tracks us, which means every little keystroke, everything we do is recorded, and then it's sent on that information to a therapist or to a sponsor or not to spouses, by the way. It's not healthy for you spouses to see every single keystroke because you'll look and you'll watch. But there's other forms of um, 
of uh, protective software that involve things like they will um, uh, they will filter out certain words or they'll filter out certain kinds of, so you put in sex, you put in this and that not available to you. So they're kind of like kids monitoring, if you will, but it's adapted to adults. And I really like the kind that tracks someone because when I'm they're making that keystroke, I don't actually want the computer to stop them. I want their thought of, wow, if I do this, someone else is going to hold me accountable later. I'm going to have to have a conversation about it. And I'm not saying a spouse. I'm saying someone else I really respect I'm trying to get help from. I think that builds a lot more long-term character and also helps the brain, I think, go in the right direction with this, which is I need to reach out to somebody, not I need to be alone with it. So Tammy, lots of questions. Um, Anything else? Next, nope, that was good. Next You're one. You're rolling I am, them out tonight. You're well, rolling them out. Well, there's a lot. So, okay. I'll I am a quicker. sex addict. When choosing a therapist, in a, uh, is a sex therapist as adequate as a sex addiction therapist? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, so, let's just run through a couple of things. Sex therapists are not always trained in mental health. Um, it's sort of like a nurse practitioner is what I think of. They are good at bandaging and, you know, and they're good at but very specific sexual issues like fetishes and kink and how do I improve our sex life? But when you have something like an addiction, it really requires a much higher level of focus. So um, I got a PhD in sexology, um, but there were people taking certifications in some of those courses who didn't even have a master's and they were going to go out well in that particular state and, and hang a shingle that says I'm a sex therapist. I don't think many sex therapists have a clue about a, the addictive process. And I would say that most sex therapists are the, well, it depends on when they went to school, but might be less likely because you have to understand as a sex therapist, if I were just in that role, my role is to encourage sexuality and calm people down around their sexuality and help them feel more comfortable and not shame themselves. And, and that's not what you want to do with an addict. Addicts you want to confront and challenge and you know do almost the opposite. So I think it's not enough to be a sex therapist. I think, and one more thing, CSATs, yes, certified sex addiction people, they're not always great either, but it depends on who it is. But they certainly understand the process and what's needed and the desired outcome. Um, they're not in the same place as a sex therapist. So to sum up, sex therapists are generally there to improve your sex life or help you come to terms with some part of it that seems uncomfortable or shameful to you or something that doesn't work and you want to fix it, uh, body parts and stuff like that. But addiction therapists are more, most often masters, if not PhD level. And we all, we already grasp and are licensed in and experienced in mental health. And then we may specialize in addiction and then in sexuality. So, you know, um, yeah, I think that's, they're really different categories. Um, a lot of folks in my classes for sexuality didn't know a clue about addiction. Um, but a lot of my folks in addiction classes went back, way back in the day understood that there were behavioral addictions like eating and sex. Um, Tammy, thoughts? I mean, you work with so many oh, folks, I, or do you uh, want to uh, keep rolling? No, well, I really agree with that. And I, I say this all the time, you know, we, you go to your general practitioner doctor for general stuff. You go to the specialist that's highly trained in what you have, a like cancer. And, and when I had my sinus surgery, I want the right person. And so I'm glad you're asking. And, and if you're a sex addict, the, probably the best fit is somebody who's certified to work specifically with sex addiction. And I, the generalist addiction person that works with alcohol, they don't necessarily have the training with it either. So I often hear about problematic you know, consequences from an addiction specialist 
who is just working with alcohol and drugs. So you're doing this, what does that mean? Look for experts, look for experts. You know, I was online, um, oh, Tammy, it's such a great opportunity. I was on in the rooms on last Friday night and someone said, I've been looking for a treatment center and I really go to want to go to one for sex addiction or compulsive porn use or, or where do I go? And I said, well, thank you for asking the question because I run a treatment program in California and I went through it. But more importantly, I went through like what good treatment is. And part of, I mean, residential or inpatient, part of the problem is, and I'm very aware of this, when you go online, all the treatment centers do everything. Oh, we treat sex or we treat drugs or we treat this and that. And I think having been inside of those institutions and uh, been involved in creating some of those institutions that while they have the client's heart best, well, they have our best interests in mind, they don't understand the issues. If you have sexual compulsivity or porn issues, you're not going to sit with a bunch of alcoholics and talk about your problem. You need specific treatment because, you know, if I'm sitting with a bunch of alcoholics, so seeking specialty treatment means those are the only people who are there. I'm not dealing with alcoholics or drug addicts. And I think the second piece is, and I just have to say this again and again, is experts. You know, we live in a time where every website looks like, everyone looks like they're doing every uh, social media environments. Whoever says oftentimes, you know, it's not your degree or where you went to school or what you know, it's, it's how provocative can you be and how sexy can your website be? And so when I'm looking for a therapist, when I'm looking for a treatment program, I want people who've written books or people who at least active with a blog, or I can see their work. I want people that um, that I can see that they have been involved with treatment programs before or have addiction experience. I don't think it's enough, especially now, folks, and you know this, for people to say anything online. What matters to me is what is their actual experience working with people? And is that going to benefit the people that I want to encourage to see them? Um, I'm going to tag yeah. on to that. I, I share when people call asking about help. I share that you know you and Dr. David both teach other therapists around the world how to work with clients with this. And you're both working directly with clients at our treatment program. And, and I often share, you know, we don't do everything. This is all we do, but we do it expertly. And I think that that really matters in this particular arena. You know, we aren't, you know, if you're struggling with something else, you know, that's not us, but well, that's, for this, yeah, I mean, we do it really, really well. We have a lot of women who call and ask for sex addiction treatment or, or and some of you may not realize this is a huge shameful problem for many, many women, but we specialize in men. And I know other programs that specialize in women. Um, and I think again, the more specific the work can get, the more less the person is a generalist in that sense. And uh, the more educated they are, expert they are, you're in a better, uh, you're in a better place. Tammy makes a lot of referrals. and. If you write it right to, sorry to make your e-box, your e-box fill up, but if you write T-A-M-I at seekingintegrity.com, um, we don't get paid for making referrals. We don't get kickbacks. We don't run a women's program. So there are a lot of, we don't run a couples program. So there are a lot of places that we can refer people um, and a lot of different things that are available to you that you may not know about. And, you know, we don't charge to try to help folks out in that way. So drop us a note. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.